Hello and welcome to the Talking Points podcast, the inaugural Kent political podcast with myself, Oliver Kemp, and our political editor, Paul Francis. How are you doing, Paul? Good, thanks. So this is our first ever one. So brand new and squeaky clean, we don't even have any music for it yet. <laughs> but we do have a squeaky chair. <laughs> yeah. yeah, apologies for the squeaky chair. Maybe by next week we can swap the chairs around so um, there's not that kind of mouse in the background. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, lots of things to talk about. There's going to be a lot of things to talk about on this podcast every week because our aim is to try and basically do bite-sized chunks of what's of the most important political stories happening in the county and nationwide throughout the week, right? So there's always going to be a lot of things for us to break down, to discuss and um, ruminate on. And we'll be highlighting some of the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff as well mm. that takes place as politicians go out and uh, try and secure our votes. Um, okay, so... One thing that I sort of want to discuss, and obviously for those that don't know, uh, listeners that don't know, Paul, you run, um, you produce a show called Paul on Politics, which is on KMTV, where you invite different political candidates and councillors and whatnot on each week to talk about the issues. And one thing that you brought up, which I thought was an interesting point on Friday, that this appears to be an election defined by candidates who aren't even running in the election. Yes, uh, and normally we would be spending all our time looking at what you know candidates who are standing are saying about their party's policies and pledges and uh, giving us all lots of apple pie. Um, but uh, I think what's been curious about this election so far has been the kind of attraction or the interest on politicians from MPs to others down who have decided to end their kind of careers in politics and you know we've had high profile people like Tom Watson the deputy Labour leader sort of surprising everybody by saying that he was going to leave politics uh, and I think that does indicate just how kind of atypical this is as an election that uh, we've had a, a lot of people saying that they want to arrest from politics and one of the big stories that broke in Kent over the last few days has been a decision, well we hear it's the decision, perhaps it's forced on him, was the Dover MP Charlie Alphick being deciding that he'd stand down as the candidate for the Conservative Party in Dover. Of course what's interesting about about the Charlie Elphick situation is that his wife Natalie Elphick is going to be taking his spot as the parliamentary candidate and that's fairly unusual isn't it? Uh, it's, it's highly unusual and uh, no one got wind of this until the uh, official announcement so they kept it fairly well under wraps uh, but they were I think forced into a decision by the kind of approaching deadline for nominations to be made there'd been no indication from Charlie Elphick himself really about what his intentions were in terms of standing or not standing. And then on Friday evening, a uh, press notice was sent out by the Conservative Association revealing that uh, his wife had been uh, nominated and formally selected as the prospective parliamentary candidate in Dover. Uh, and that caught everyone by surprise. Yeah, it's an incredibly interesting development. Do we know that much about Natalie Elphick? Not a great deal, but then she's not been in the public eye. Uh, she's not uh, served as a politician in, in, in any other capacity, so far as I'm aware. She hasn't, I don't think, stood uh, as a candidate in any previous elections. But uh, she's you know, got the support of the party locally. It's pretty clear that there weren't any other candidates shortlisted for it. 
it does to some people um, seem like a kind of a very carefully orchestrated uh, process by which uh, she replaces um, her husband. Uh, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out and whether it will affect the results because, you know, it's usually said that the incumbent MPs carry a bit of a personal vote. I mean, I'm not sure whether Charlie Alphick did carry a huge personal vote, but it's a Labour target seat. It's in Labour's top 100 target seats. Well, very interesting to see how that one develops then uh, coming up to uh, the election. So uh, we talked a little bit about the, the fact that this election is being defined in some ways by candidates who aren't running. I want to talk a little bit about pacts and alliances now because that as well kind of fits into that theme. Um, obviously, on Monday, we saw that Nigel Farage made a, a pretty big U-turn on on the Brexit Party's policies. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Paul. Well, again, another indication of the the fact that, or the perception that we're doing with the kind of a general election, which is unlike other general elections, is that we are seeing uh, not informal pacts, but actual formal alliances being uh, created between different parties. And just before we get on to Nigel Farage, we've had the Liberal Democrats and the Green Party uh, saying that they've uh, entered into a non what's called, called a non-aggression alliance, whereby they won't be standing uh, candidates in uh, 60 seats. And uh, one of those seats is, is Tunbridge Wells, which perhaps we'll come on to in a bit. But, yeah, the, the big story uh, on Monday was the announcement from Nigel Farage that he was no longer committing the party to standing candidates in all 600 seats. Uh, and he uh, engaged reverse gear in a way which is not in, entirely in, in character because once he takes a decision, one of the strengths that uh, people think he has is that he's, you know, once, once he takes a decision, he doesn't retreat from those decisions. because I think he sees it as a sign of weakness. Other people might see it as a sign of strength. But this was a kind of big reversal, uh, and his argument was that Boris Johnson had intimated in in the previous forty eight hours that uh, there would be uh, agreement not to ask for a further extension, uh, hints that uh, they to leave the the UK would leave the EU uh, potentially uh, without kind of formal deals in place. And his argument was, well, we've forced Boris to to move more in, in our direction, and therefore they, the party wasn't going to stand candidates against any Conservative MPs. But this is also a man who has a show on LBC where he pretty much consistently, through the last few months, de decried Boris Johnson's values and, and moves politically. So then yeah, to absolutely. turn around and go, well, actually, we'll step back and allow this to happen... It was pretty shocking, I think, to everyone. Yeah, wasn't it? I, and I don't. Th uh, one of the things that I've noticed about him is Nigel Farage is kind of great when he's in rallies uh, and amongst loyal supporters, and uh, he, he riffs off that incredibly well. He's a very skilled kind of uh, uh, speaker operator, but this does represent a kind of a, a big U-turn. Uh, and uh, I, I'm wondering whether he's kind of losing some of the enthusiasm for the fight a little bit. Um, he, I mean, the, he has said that the Brexit Party will contest seats where there are uh, Remain candidates in place, in place, which obviously means most of the Labour and Lib Liberal Democrat seats. Uh, but it's, it's the first time that I've seen kind of quite open dissent from uh, Brexit Party supporters 
over the leadership stance. Yeah, not only supporters, but potential candidates. Because yeah. we had Ed Hall, who was going to stand in Dover and deal, and he said it makes strategic sense, but that doesn't make it any less disappointing for passionate supporters in Dover and deal that a clean break Brexit option won't now be on the ballot paper. Yeah, it sums up the position completely correctly. Uh, what candidates and those who signed up to stand for the Brexit party think is that, you know, they won't voters now won't have the option of a candidate who is coming from a strong Brexiteer position. Uh, and I, it's interesting that uh, Nigel Farage has said it's it's all Conservative seats. I, I do wonder whether he might have thought about targeting particular seats where there were uh, Remainer Conservative candidates in place, but I just think that was going to be too messy a situation. Uh, so they opted for the kind of um, uh, the, the option of all Conservative seats, they would uh, no longer contest those constituencies. And on the other side of things, we're talking about pacts. We uh, we have the Lib Dems standing in Canterbury against Labour candidate Rosie Duffield, which in theory could split their vote and hand the keys to the Conservatives. And you, you actually had Rosie Duffield on your show on Friday talking about this. We have a little clip, so we'll, we'll just play that for you guys to listen to. I'm all in favour of democracy and people being able to stand wherever they want to. It's just unfortunate that really the only sort of issue that the Lib Dems are seen as, as having is Brexit, and we absolutely agree on, bre on Brexit, and I've been campaigning to stay as close as possible to the EU or remain for several years now. So I think that the huge backlash on social media reflected that people were really disappointed that, you know, I wasn't the clear sort of only Remain candidate. And a lot of my friends who are in the Lib Dem party locally are campaigning for me. So it does seem a bit of a waste of time. But I agree with Tim, it is a shame that we couldn't have made that kind of Remain Alliance official. That's what Rosie says. Um, is it feasible that, that the, the Liberal Democrats could end up splitting the vote in Canterbury and therefore... Labour loses the seat that they have just retained after sort of 100 years? Um, it's entirely possible. It's going to be a very interesting contest in Canterbury. I don't quite know how, how it's going to, to play out. But you're right, in terms of you know, obvious areas where there, there, there could be a successful pact uh, for you know, Labour or the Lib Dems, it is Canterbury. And you've got this odd, slightly odd situation where uh, I'm going to talk a bit about Tunbridge Wells, where Tunbridge Wells is one of these seats where the Lib Dems and the Green Party have got a pact not to stand against one another. Uh, and the Liberal Democrats think that's a seat in play, even though they came in pretty low in third position at the 2017 election. So um, some people were contrasting the, that with Canterbury and thinking well, it was much more obvious if the, the Lib Dems stood down or didn't contest the Canterbury constituency and urged people to vote Labour, that would possibly enhance Rose's prospects of retaining a seat. Uh, for the Conservatives, you know, the fact uh, that Nigel, Nigel Farage has made this decision won't actually affect Canterbury because Canterbury being a Labour-held seat means that there will be a Brexit party candidate there. So you've got this situation where uh, the Conservatives are worried that the Brexit party candidate will take votes away from them the Labour Party worried that the Liberal Democrats will do the same. So this is kind of curious asymmetry around Canterbury. And that makes it very difficult to to to, to forecast what might happen. You know, what what is happening on the ground is that the, the Tories are going in very heavy on the campaign front. You know, uh, they, they post all these uh, social media uh, 
posts about you know how they've been campaigning and they've they're using this hashtag paint Canterbury blue uh, and you know running a very overt you know highly organised campaign as far as I can make out. Um, so I think you know their their ambition is pretty clear. They're out to regain the seat. But going back to that Lib Dem confidence, where is that coming from? They have a real confidence to to potentially do well in this election, and despite as you say, kind of ending up pretty low in previous times. I know you had you had they had the success of the local elections, which you could say maybe think that might be bolstering the conversation around around the party. But but do, do they really think they have a shot here? Yeah, they do. And uh, you know, it's one of the curious things is that you know for a party which. Um, made sort of modest progress at the uh, local council elections in terms of their seat uh, wins, is now uh, saying that uh, it feels it's got a better chance than the Labour Party candidate of winning seats like Tunbridge Wells. Um, And I think what's emboldened them has been this... um, They've cemented their kind of, you know, hard line on on Brexit, effectively saying we're not like Labour, we're not kind of uh, prevaricating or having a very complicated set of uh, steps to follow. The Liberal Democrats are saying if we form the next government, and of course they're not going to form the next government, uh, but let's go with it for a, a little while, they say they will scrap Brexit altogether. So there won't be any case, uh, any second referendum or any kind of further people's vote. They will say if they form the next government, that's enough of the mandate. They've been given a political mandate to revoke uh, Brexit. Uh, And I think that potentially is a message which might appeal to kind of wavering Labour voters uh, because of their kind of much more uh, uh, explicit commitment to uh, stopping stopping Brexit. So I think that's a factor. I mean, all these things, you know, are horribly difficult to decode and extrapolate in terms of where where parties might get to on December the 12th. Uh, but they've definitely got a bit of a spring in their step in the Lib Dems at the moment and think they can do very well. Interesting. OK, so moving on slightly then, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the abuse of female MPs. And, and that, again, brings us back to this topic of an election defined by candidates who aren't running because we've had a number of female MPs who have ended up stepping down, deciding not to run during this election. We had Nikki Morgan, who cited abuse as one of her reasons for, for standing down. Uh, Heidi Allen stood down and she highlighted the, the nastiness and intimidation that had become commonplace in politics. That's um, her quote there, not mine. Um, I mean, is it possible for us to try and distill what exactly is causing female MPs to be targeted or feel targeted uh, other than kind of particularly nasty regressive sexism uh, oh that's a tricky one uh, that's I mean, what we're here uh, for uh, yes. <laughs> well that is an obvious uh, reason why some of them are standing down I think what um, you know the body politic is concerned about is that the normalisation of uh, you know insults and gratuitous abuse on uh, MPs and other politicians uh, has just become an, a, a sort of a, an established, accepted part of what what goes on, particularly on social media. But you know, clearly, uh, some of these MPs feel very vulnerable about uh, this uh, this sort of development of this kind of not exactly political engagement. And there's no kind of arguments going on here about policy or 
discur- discursive kind of discussion about what uh, you know what a policy might mean, etc. It is just often high level personal abuse, and you know anyone who's been on Twitter knows exactly what that is. And, and uh, I think you know that for for all the good social media platforms do, uh, and it's a great way of ha- having debates. It's one of the downside is this kind of vilification and abuse of uh, certain MPs. Mm. And uh, interestingly, some of that abuse is trickling down to youth politics as well. So I spoke to Anna McGovern, who's chair of the Medway Youth Council, and she said in her position as a youth councillor, she herself has experienced more abuse online than any other chair in recent years. And she did say to me that she's... um, that she doesn't think it's necessarily because she's a woman, although she is the first female chair in about five years. So make of, make of that what you will. Um, here's what she had to say anyway about the toxicity of online discussion against women MPs. It can become really toxic. And I think um, women MPs especially don't get the respect that they deserve. And um, some MPs like Nicola Sturgeon, for example, have been subjected to the most horrible abuse. And um, I really think it does need to change. Paul, and I think some of it might be to do with the way that Brexit has really divided people. Maybe some of this intense online abuse comes down to the division that that, that is a very partisan topic, 51-49, you know, across the country, that maybe that was some plays some part in people getting more aggressive about uh, towards MPs, towards people in, in politics. Um, do you think that might improve after Brexit is done and dusted whenever... That well, maybe. there's a presumption there that Brexit is going to be done and dusted on <laughs> December the 13th, which is not you're a highly optimistic <laughs> guy if you think that's going to be going to be the case. I mean, I think what Brexit had done actually, and it was a point that Rosie Duffield brought up on uh, the the politics show on Friday, is and it ties in, it ties in with people deciding to leave politics, is that both the main parties, Labour and Conservatives are perhaps losing some of their kind of moderate base, as it were, uh, and pushing the two parties to the extremes. Uh, and I think that's you know, there's obviously interconnections there between you know uh, the fact that uh, uh, you know, MPs are, are have been targeted, uh, and if you look at those MPs who have been targeted, a lot of them have come from that moderate wing of the Conservative Party and the more centrist. Uh, part of the Labour Party and I think it's uh, Damien Green has uh, tweeted a lot about this in terms of his concerns about losing uh, MPs who you know are sort of regarded as you know part of the moderate wing of the the Conservative Party with you know one nation kind of instincts Uh, and I think you know Brexit has exacerbated those extremes. Mm. I mean it feels like at some point there needs to be a tipping point where where maybe parties need to start encouraging more female MPs to stand. I mean, if this kind of abuse defines their experience as a member of parliament, we may see more and more female MPs dropping out of the political wings and, and then we could be back to a point where we have hardly any representatives uh, who are female in parliament, which is obviously not a good thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, you know, for a, it might have taken one step forward in terms of female representation and two steps back. Uh, you know, quite what the solution is, I've actually got no idea. I mean, uh, you know, um, it's terribly difficult to police kind of these social media platforms anyway. Uh, so it is, um, 
it is something which you know is going to perhaps act as a deterrent to uh, people coming forward to stand for election. Why you know why would you volunteer for that kind of level of uh, abuse from people you don't know you know that's the that's the, the the obvious question that people might ask themselves yeah you're really putting yourself out there on a platform yeah, to exactly, potentially yeah. have your life wrecked in in some ways yeah and uh, i think you know uh it's it's kind of easy to underestimate the impact that kind of uh, stuff has on people you know i know i get a bit kind of uh, angsty when people take me to task on <laughs> on twitter about uh, things that i've posted so you know what it is for kind of female mps to you know be targeted in such a kind of vile way is uh, is is something different yeah well to end on um and something we're going to do every single week uh, is a little bit at the end of the show where we're going to do jargon of the week and we're going to talk about a specific word or phrase that tends to come up in political discourse or even journalistic discourse that basically means something that's much easier to say in a different way. So I think yeah. uh, the one we've got this That's week, a bit of a lengthy introduction. <laughs> do you today, know what? That was quite jargonistic. Yes, it was. <laughs> you, um, well, you do it. You, you, you know, do it justice, right. Paul. Right, well, OK. The, the, the word that I've, I've picked for this uh, week is, uh, or this edition of the podcast, is bellwether, because you'll, you'll often hear journalists talk about uh, elections uh, and refer to bellwether seats. And uh, bellwether was a... F- a word which has its origins origins in uh, <laughs> uh, castrated rams, basically. Who uh, sure. uh, I'll stick with it because I'll, I'll get there in a minute. <laughs> uh, it's it was the practice of putting a bell on a castrated ram to lead sheep to appropriate places so shepherds could hear, even if they weren't able to see their flocks of sheep. Uh, and that has morphed into de- uh, describing seats where the party that wins that particular constituency is always going to be the party that forms the next government. Do we have a bellwether seat in Kent? Well, Gravesham uh, has traditionally been passed, uh, been classed as a bellwether seat. Uh, and if you look at the stats, it's proven that uh, every time it's elected an MP, that MP uh, has gone on to be part of the uh, new government in, that runs the country. So look out for the word bellwether and castrated sheep. Yeah, too, and and obviously Gravesham, you know, if you're interested in, in what's going to happen in the upcoming election. Yes, great. Uh, very interesting word. Uh, and, well, finally, um, obviously we're going to be back next week uh, with another Talking Points podcast. Um, we still haven't had the published manifestos from the parties yet. Do you think we might be discussing them on next week's episode or uh, could yeah. we still be left patiently I mean, waiting? Uh, Manifestos are always a big part of election campaigns. And what's been quite interesting is we've had lots of leaders' speeches. You know, you can't get away from a leader's speech almost every day on this, that and the other. Uh, and there's, you know, we, we've seen a bit more uh, for the kind of traditional battle lines being drawn between the Conservatives and Labour where they've uh, all been having a go at their kind of uh, the uh, uncosted trillions and billions of pounds that uh, they're, they're going to pump into uh, uh various areas in order to uh, win our support. So, yeah, uh, uh, the manifestos will be out. Manifestos generally tend to be documents that are kind of interesting for about 48 hours and then everyone forgets about them. Um, but they they hopefully will put a bit more flesh on the bones of uh, what the parties are going to be uh, standing on with some rather more explicit commitments. I think part of the problem that we've had uh, in the first week of the campaign is that, you know, uh, lots of these figures have been banded around uh, and there's been no kind of real, you know, costed breakdown uh, of you know 
what it actually is going to mean in practice. So the manifestos, with our fingers crossed, might put uh, a bit more detail on that, although I'm not overly optimistic. <laughs> so our eyes will be on the money then. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens next week, but uh, thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you then. Yeah, goodbye. See you next <laughs> <laughs> That was very delayed. <laughs>